Good morning, fellowship. Okay, that was a little sleepy, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be one of those pastors that says, let's try that again. Good morning, fellowship. I guess I did just be one of those pastors. Good morning. It is good to be with you all. Uh, by the way, I'm Rob. If we haven't met or it's been a little while, I'd love to say hi. Just come down sometime after the worship service and say hello and love to put a name with the face, especially if you're new to fellowship. And uh, we'll have some announcements at the end about how to get connected, so hang around for that. Um, but it is good to be here, and it's good to be with you. Uh, I want to start by in leading us in some prayer for a family in our body that's suffering very significantly. I think we have a photo of this family we can put on the screen. This is the Phillips family, um, Mike in the back there, and, and Julie uh, up there in the front, and then Casey and Connor in the upper right. Phillips family lost Connor recently, um, a week ago last Tuesday, Connor passed away. And Connor was a freshman at Taylor University. He was a graduate of Centennial High School. Uh, Phillips family attends our Brentwood campus. Connor was a type one diabetic and uh, his numbers dropped dangerously low. And uh, by the time they got to him, he didn't have a pulse. They were able to revive his pulse, but uh, he had no brain activity. And he passed away the last day or the, the next day rather. We had a funeral yesterday at our Brentwood campus and just a heavy time for our body. You know, as I was thinking about what to share about this family with you, I thought to myself, our mission statement is to become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. And part of what it means to be a community of people is to grieve with each other when we grieve and to celebrate when we celebrate. And this is a time of grief. This is a time of mourning for this family. So we wanna grieve with them. Uh, their faith is strong. It was a wonderful service of celebration and, and memorial yesterday, but certainly difficult times. And uh, we wanna encourage and lift up the Phillips family, not just today, but in the days and months and years to come. So let's pray for them as I lead us. Father, our hearts are for Mike and Julie and Casey. Uh, they're extended family as well, and, and all those who are grieving, the friends of Connor from Centennial High School and from Fellowship, from Taylor University. And God, we don't always understand why things happen the way they happen. Help us to trust you, even through deep, dark loss such as this one. And I pray for their family, Father, that they would feel surrounded by those who care for them and love them, and most importantly, that they would feel surrounded by you and your love for them in this time. Would you sustain, give them endurance, give them peace that passes all understanding. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to continue the story of uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Uh, if you missed last week, I can't encourage you enough to go back and take a listen or watch it. You can find that online. Also, we have a podcast, Fellowship Franklin podcast, where you'll find the messages. Robbie Painter came and just did a spectacular job of teaching that text and unpacking that text. And what I appreciated so much about Robbie's teaching was not only the, the content, but the way he delivered it, he was, he was connected to that text. He, he embodied the passage uh, just in, in his presence. And I'm just so grateful for the, 
the way that he did that last week. I know you'll wanna take a listen if you missed it. But here's the summary of the, of the text from last week. You know, Jesus goes out of his way essentially to encounter this woman who was an outcast of her society. This woman who came alone in the middle of the day to draw water. Uh, who does she encounter but the God who created her? God in the flesh and Jesus Christ. And uh, if you zoom out, what's interesting about this text was this is the first time that the word of God had come to non-Jewish people since the time of Jonah. So it's a missionary text. That's one of the things I love that, that Robbie did last week. He emphasized that. His, his last two sentences of his message last week were, were these. I pray that God would send us as fountains of living water to those he's putting in our path, thirsty to know the love of their creator. Who might that be for you? What a good question. Who might that be for you? Someone that God's put in your path, thirsty to know the love of their creator. Whether they know it or not, what they're searching for is the love of their creator. Uh, this morning's text really continues that last question. Who might that be for you? And I'm gonna walk through the text quickly because there's some application that I wanna really rest on. I wanna spend some time in the application this morning. And here's how this is going to work. After I read and explain, teach the text, I'm gonna introduce you to a fellowship family, a, a couple here at, uh, at fellowship who've been essentially living out this application of this text this morning. And I won't share a lot more with you about them now, except I'll say this. I'm pretty sure you're gonna leave here today thinking, I'm really glad I came to church, if for no other reason than to get to know this family and hear their story. But let's start in chapter four, verse 27 of John's gospel. And this is where we're gonna pick up our text. Jesus has just revealed to the woman at the well that he's the Messiah. Like he's the one that has been long waited for. And this is what happens next. We'll put that on the screen. Uh, we may not put it on the screen for a moment. Uh, we'll get it when we can. So let's pick it up in verse 27 of our text. Then, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Uh, you probably, if you've heard this text taught before, you'll know that teachers love to make a big deal of this detail that she left her water jar. And we make a big deal of that detail because it's significant. You know, every detail in the scripture matters. But, but why did John, the narrator, go out of his way to mention that? Well, he would have had a first-hand eyewitness account of that. He would have seen, oh, there's a woman, she's gathering water, she's running away from the well, and she doesn't even have her water. It's like she failed at her errand. <laughs> she failed at her mission. Oh, no, she didn't. What she had was the true water that she had really come for, that she didn't know she was coming for, but that she was getting. Jesus had told her, he said, listen, if you knew who was speaking to you, you, you would ask me to give you living water and, and you would never have to come back to this well again. So I love the significance of her leaving her water jar. The other detail that I wanted to call out is the question that she asks. I, I love the way she says this to her people in her village. She says, see a man who told me all they ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's interesting that she asks a question, not a statement. There's probably two reasons one reason is she's still puzzling this out in her mind. You know, Jesus has just told her, I'm the Christ. He's literally just said that. And she's thinking, could that be true? Do I believe that? He just 
predicted, he told me all about myself. He, he obviously is connected to God somehow. He's a prophet of some kind. Can he be the Christ? The second reason I like the question, though, is sometimes a question is a lot more powerful than a statement, particularly when you're sharing your faith with somebody. Some of you, uh, this is your story. You came to Christ as an adult, maybe in college or as a later age, and you went back to your family who were not believers. And because of your good intentions, you're so exuberant, you just beat the gospel into them and it may have turned them off. Like this is literally some of your stories in the room. And you just say, you gotta be a Christian. You know, you gotta find what I find. And you sort of shake their shoulders. And it's just like, I found it, I found it. Oftentimes a question is more effective. This woman says, I've found someone who told me everything. He, he's amazing. Could he be the Christ? And because of her question, she drew them out of the town. Now, with her reputation, do you think a statement, they would have believed her? <laughs> I've found Messiah. I don't know that they would have believed her, but she asks a question and she draws them out. Let's see what happens. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You know, they'd gone into the town to get him food, and now they brought the food out. He's not eating it. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work kind of a humorous exchange, you know. Uh, the, the disciples are wondering, did, did, did the woman give him food? You know, did someone sneak him food? You know, surely he hasn't eaten. We know he's hungry. Jesus has in mind uh, a different type of hunger and a different type of food. There are two different kinds of hunger that are being described in this text. There's the physical hunger, and that's what the disciples had experienced, and that's what their mind was on. And it's not wrong to be focused on physical hunger. Without food, our bodies will die. We need the energy you know, that the food provides. That's a real hunger. But there's another hunger that's just as real a deeper hunger. And Jesus is saying, listen, I have some food that you don't know about yet. You haven't experienced yet. And he goes on to say, it's to do the will of the Father. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because this is where this text really starts to come alive a little bit. What I think Jesus is saying is, he's saying there, there's a deeper hunger beyond the hunger for food and it's the hunger for purpose. It's the hunger for your life to be about something that you were created for, something that you were made for. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm so satisfied right now. I don't feel hungry. I'm satisfied, Jesus says, because I've been living out my purpose. What was Jesus's purpose? So clear, so clear. To do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Jesus is saying, the reason I came to this earth to accomplish the work of the Father. God the Father has given me a task and I've just been living into my purpose. And when you live into your purpose, that's a food that's more satisfying than food. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, when he has this little phrase, he goes, I have food to eat that you do not know about. You know, 
He's not saying, I'm way up here, spiritually, heavenly, good, and you're base. He's not poking at them. He's about to invite them to eat the real food that satisfies. He's, invite, he's about to invite them to, to experience purpose and meaning and be satisfied in, in accomplishing the task that they've been sent to do. So this is going to be a huge moment in the development of the disciples, and I want you to see it. Look at the next set of verses. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And here is the purpose statement that Jesus is going to give to his disciples. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, this was um, an agrarian society. These were uh, rural people. They'd, they'd grown up in, in Galilee, which was sort of the agricultural region of the area. They were fishermen. They were farmers. They, these metaphors would have worked very well for them. So when Jesus says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, he's saying, listen, God the Father has been at work in the lives of the people of this village for generations. He's been at work in the lives of the Samaritans. You're showing up today to reap a harvest that you didn't have to work for. God's been at work. But this morning, you get the privilege of sharing the good news with them and receiving the reward of, of reaping the harvest. This is why Jesus had sent. It had sent them. This was their life purpose. And so I, I know it, it sounds a little weird to us. I, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. That's kind of a strange life purpose for us to connect to, but, but I, I want you to see it this way. Jesus is saying your life purpose, the, the deeper food I'm calling you to eat is the same food that I've been eating. Your purpose is the same purpose that I have. My purpose, Jesus says, is to do the will of the Father, to do the will of the one who sent me. Your purpose is the same. Do the will of the Father. Do the work that he has called you to do. And, and you get to be the ones to announce to these Samaritans the good news of the coming kingdom. And then look what happens next. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. In my mind, one of the high points of Jesus' ministry right here, you have a, essentially a whole village of people that come to believe in Messiah. Uh, not only that, but these were outcast, unwanted, unseen people. These were the ones on the outside looking in. These were the ones that the Jewish elite and the religious scholars had turned their nose up at and said they're, they're outside of God's gift. They're not God's people. 
And then God himself comes and surprise, surprise, the first people that get a full proclamation of Jesus' identity and, and a full sort of gospel explanation are the Samaritans. Isn't that interesting? And they receive and they respond. So you get this contrast with Jerusalem, which, you know, they're worried about Jesus being dangerous and they're worried about his message and you gotta be careful, don't rock the boat. And then the Samaritan village, openness, open hands, belief, faith. It's a very interesting contrast. Uh, by the way, there's a detail in the, the previous text when Jesus says, lift up your eyes, see the fields are white for harvest. Uh, we know that the villagers were coming out. They were streaming out because of the testimony of the woman. And a lot of commentators think that, that literally Jesus was probably pointing to the people coming toward them across the field. And, and what were they wearing? Well, poor people didn't wear colorful clothing back then. You know, dye was expensive. So they just would have had, you know, natural color or, or white or off-white tunics. And Jesus says, look up. The fields are white for harvest. These people are ready to believe, and I am calling you to join me at the feast. Live out your purpose. What's the application of this text for you and me? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life purpose is the same as Jesus's life purpose. And let me put that, put that on the screen because I want you to think about that. I want you to sink, sink that in. It makes sense if you're a follower of Jesus, then you want to, as best as you can, imitate the life of Jesus, obey the teachings of Jesus. And if Jesus is about a certain work, we want to be about the same work. So what is the life purpose of Jesus that is the same as ours? To do the will of the Father. In other words... You are not random. Your birth on this planet and the time you were born, the place you were born, the family you were born into, the, the skills and talents that you naturally have, the past experiences, both hurts and high points in your life, is all being intentionally woven like a thread so that you can live out the purpose that God has created you for. And you'll say, well, what is my purpose? And I would say, there's like 300 of you in the room, however many. I can't know each of your purposes, but I do know that all of our purposes fall under the same heading, to do the will of the Father, to be about the work that God made us to be about. Inside of each of us, is a hunger that no delicious breakfast or lunch can satisfy. It's the hunger to live out your purpose, to, to fully embody your reason for being. Most of us live all of our lives with that nagging thing in the back of my mind. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> I know I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm a pastor and but, but is this what God called me to? Like, is this the purpose? And you might look at me and be like, well, you've got a purpose. You're a pastor. And I'd look at you and say, no different than you. God made me to do this. God made you to do something. Are you living into that purpose? And, and by the way, it doesn't have to be your vocation. And many times the, the purpose that we find is, is tangential to our actual vocation. But sometimes it's one and the same. My question for you is, do you know why you're here? This is a big moment for the disciples that, that 
Jesus is telling them, he's like, listen, I have food that you don't know yet. Now let me invite you to the table. My food is to do the work of the Father who sent me. Now let me invite you to that same table. Let me encourage you to be about the work the Father sent you to do. So what's the work the Father has sent you to do? That's the question from the text. God has been uniquely preparing you to discover and live out the meaning and purpose of your life. And once you taste it, you'll find it's more satisfying than food. Now, I want to introduce you to a couple that is here with us. In fact, a whole family that's here with us. We're gonna bring the uh, husband and wife on the stage and introduce to your family. Y'all coming up, Ryan and Jazeera Boyette. The Boyettes attend our Brentwood campus. They've been at fellowship for uh, three, three years or so, and we are delighted to have them with us. Thanks, guys, for helping us with the stools. We appreciate that. Um, I want you to hear their story because what you're gonna find is this is a couple who has discovered and are living out their true purpose. And uh, Ryan, I'm gonna start with you. Just introduce us to your family and tell us a little bit about you guys. Sure. Good morning, everyone. My name's Ryan Boyette. We're so happy to be here today. Uh, this is my wife, Jazeera. And our two kids, Eben and Kandaka, are here. You can see them on the screen. Um, we've been going to fellowship for about uh, three and a half years at the Brentwood campus. Fantastic. Uh, all right, Ryan, you have an interesting background, an interesting story. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, sure. I, so in 2002, I graduated from university, and I was going to be an FBI agent or U.S. Customs agent. Well, my sister gave me an article that was two paragraphs about the war in Sudan, and it was about um, the persecution of a pastor in Sudan. So I became quite frustrated and a little angry that why as a college graduate, I have never heard of this conflict in my entire life, and over a million people ha uh, lives were claimed as a result of that conflict. Uh, so I started doing research. And as I did research, I started to feel God laying it heavy on my heart to go to Sudan. Uh, long story short, I got a job with uh, Samaritan's Purse and I left the idea of, of having uh, a home in the US and a white picket fence and having this job I wanted. And I felt God just calling me to Sudan. So with, they called me one day and within four days of that phone call that I got the job, I was landing in the middle of a place called the Nuba Mountains in Sudan um, in an old World War II plane, kind of landing on a dirt runway. And I looked around out of the window of the plane, there was nothing except uh, mountains spotted with uh, mud huts and grass roofs. And as the doors swung open, I was excited, but then the heat hit my face and it was about 115 degrees that day. And I thought, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Um, but then as time went on, I started to love the people of Nuba and just seeing their resilience. They had been in conflict for years and years and working alongside of them, going home to home and village to village, doing all sorts of work to help their daily lives, preaching the good news of Christ um, for the next seven years. Um, and while that time was going on, um, I, I continued to, to be preaching inside the, uh, the Nuba Mountains and uh, I had the opportunity to go and talk to a village about, uh, about Christ. Now, let me explain a little bit about Sudan because I know that there is, um, the church supports people in South Sudan. Yes. Um, so, so where we are in the Nuba Mountains. I'm gonna pause you for a minute. I think we have a map that'll help with this. Let's put the yeah, map, there we go. There we go. So 
we are actually in the country of Sudan and not South Sudan. We travel through South Sudan and take an eight hour drive across the international border. Um, I have been in Sudan for a total of 20 years and we have never had a visa to be in the country. God has allowed us access um, through this part of this uh, very remote area. So South Kordofan is where the Nuba Mountains is. And it's about 70% Muslim um, and about 30% Christian. So the majority is Muslim in, in, in Nuba and the whole country, it's about 90% uh, or more Muslim. Um, but we have had access to this region. Um, and as you were talking, Rob, about the, uh, the woman at the well, I was remembering a, a story in Nuba that happened when uh, a, a person who was working with us named Awad, he, he's a really good friend of mine and he worked with us with Samaritan's Purse, and, but he was a Muslim. And in the Nuba Mountains, there's about 56 different tribes. And he came from a tribe that's almost 100% Muslim. And so he was reading his Bible every day as he worked with us. And as he was reading his Bible, he asked a lot of questions. And he said, um, and I asked him one day, I said, Howard, you, you probably know your Bible better than me. I mean, he was reading it day and night. And I said, why have you not become a Christian? And he says, I fear what my family will think. And I said, well, what needs to happen for you to see that God is real and that you um, should know his son. And he said, I need to, he said, if, if my father ever took a Bible in his hand, I will take that as a sign that I should be a follower of Jesus. I said, all right, well then let's go to your village. So we went to his village and uh, we were served a meal. The people are so hospitable. And we sat down and at the meal, I said, let's pray. And as we prayed, the people kind of talked over us. They never saw a Christian praying over a meal and they thought it was interesting. And they're kind of talking as we were praying. And afterward, the elder came up to me and said, Ryan, we noticed that you are a Christian and everything we've heard about Christians is bad from our government, but we have seen nothing bad from Christians. And we're asking you to come and tell us about Jesus. And I said, of course, I would be happy to. And in Sudan, we call something Sudan time. So I made a date with them that I would come two weeks later and we would go through the Bible. And Sudan time is that you set a meeting for um, a, a time for the meeting. And then you know that the meeting is actually gonna start two hours after that time that you set. <laughs> so I showed up and sure enough, there were 80 people waiting for us on time to hear the words of God. And we went through the Bible chronologically and we talked and discussed and it was in this amazing discussion. And then we showed the Jesus film and then we had several boxes of Arabic Bibles. And Howard was standing next to me as we're handing out these Bibles. And so many people came up. And then finally I grabbed the last Bible out of the box and I picked it up. And sure enough, I handed it to the man and I looked at him and it was Howard's father. And then, so I looked at Howard like this. <laughs> And two weeks later, it was Easter Sunday and we had devotions and Howard said, I would like to say something. And he became a Christian that day. And it, it was the most amazing feeling. And there's so many stories like that. And so I continued the work with Samaritan's Purse for a total of eight years. Um, and by that time I was working so hard. I was thin, I was tired. I was sick a lot of times, but then I met Jazeera. <laughs> what a transition. <laughs> Okay, Jazeera, we get to hear a little bit about you. So you were born and raised in this part of Sudan, in Nuba region. Tell us what your life was like. Well, thank you, Pastor Rob. Um, my entire life was in war. 
and in all of African uh, rural area, we have normal challenges and the challenges are living in um, a house built with mud and grass, having no electricity, no running water, and you do everything to survive. So, but the war made it worse for us. At age five, my dad left me and my two siblings and my mom, and he went to the capital city for a church conference. As soon as he left, the war broke out. And the front line was established. He could not get back to us for the next seven years. So we were wondering if he was alive or dead. And um, there was the, the ground fighting was going on. The daily bombing was just happening. And life was very hard for us. So my mom spent a lot of her time to teach me and my siblings how to survive on edible grass and roots and in case something happened to her. And we were surviving that way. But as we started leaving, life was harder. So she left me and my two siblings and she worked for two weeks to a different, different village to look for food. And when she left, I have, as an older child, I have to take her responsibility. I started looking for those edible grass and roots, but there were none because everybody was looking for them. So my sister was six and she was very malnourished to the point that she could not walk anymore. She was laying in bed just looking at me. And that was very scary for me. And I thought she was gonna die before my mom get back. After two weeks, my mom came back with very little food. And that little food, God used it to save my sister's life. And that moment, it always reminded me that God's love is just sufficient for the entire world. It, that's not the only challenge that I faced during that time. My village was bombed five times on different occasions. My local school where I go sometimes was bombed and I lost one of my best friends in one of the bombings. But all those things happen to me and to so many kids so that God can prepare me to be who I will be today. In 2001, the ceasefire was established. And um, the, my dad got to come back from the capital city for the first time. And it was very exciting to see him because we were bigger by then. After that, also, a lot of organizations started coming to help. And one of those organizations was Samaritan Purse um, that brought my husband. And I get to meet him at one of the local churches and we started to get to know one another. Wow. I've heard your story a few times and it's touching me this morning in new ways. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ryan, I wanna hear more about how you guys met from your perspective. 
Yeah, so when we when we arrived in Sudan, I didn't mention this earlier. Uh, well, Desir kind of touched on it. It was it was kind of a window of peace, and so there was an opportunity to bring my parents there, and so I set my mother and father up to do a marriage conference at our local church in the village that I lived, but I needed a translator. So my mom took all the women, my dad took all the men, and I needed a translator for my mother. And a friend from Nuba was like, oh, I know, I know a lady that could translate for you. Her name is Jazeera. And so Jazeera translated for my mom at a marriage conference. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if I had a translator for the rest of my life? <laughs> um, <laughs> So after meeting Jazeera, we were married uh, about four years, no, three, four years later. Um, and, but soon after we were married, something really bad happened. And that was the war started again, um, only a few months after we were married. And we have a video that explains um, about that process and then what we did next. A news article and his faith drew him to a war-torn corner of Sudan. I just saw people that were very hardworking, resilient to years and years of conflict, and yet they were not only surviving, they were thriving. Ryan Boyette worked with churches in the Nuba Mountains, building a friendship with a woman passionate about learning. So um, when I first see him and I see what he was doing, um, I was in love with what he was doing. Word spread about this unique partnership. I was the first person to uh, marry the white person. Uh, so it was really, really uh, something huge for everybody to see. 6,000 people flocked to the Nuba region to witness the wedding. And then we got married um, in 2011. And literally a few months, like four months after we were married, the conflict broke out. Horrific attacks destroy farms, homes, starving the people. Well, I grew up in war zone. Um, so when it started, I just say, here we go again. Forcing them into caves. I knew no one was going to be hearing any news about the conflict. So I thought, this is the gap that I can fill. Ryan armed himself with special weapons, video cameras, so we just worked really hard running from bombing to bombing front lines, caves where people were hiding. Jazeera's experience with war helped Ryan. The first bombing, he started freaking out. So then I felt like, okay, I have to do some kind of lessons here for him so that he can um, be able to do what he's talking about. Creating Nuba reports. We'd send it out. Uh, to the White House, we sent it out to um, the UN, we sent it to uh, international media. Uh, and then people started taking notice. We saw the people around us who were dying of starvation, who were being killed, whose homes were being burned, friends of ours. And so that just made us work harder. And we brought more journalists in um, and, we, and we got more information out. And human rights conscious celebrities. Yesterday, 10.30, right? 10.30 in the morning. 15 bombs hit this tiny village where everyone is hiding in the rocks. But the videos made them a target. We woke up in the morning and the plane came. I was seven months pregnant. And I woke up in the morning to go um, to the neighbor's house. Bombs started falling. Ryan and his crew jumped into a hole. But Jazeera was down the road with no bomb shelter. 
At seven months pregnant, she dove behind a rock. Her dog lay on top of her crying. God saved me for that reason, um, for the reason of something that I still am trying to find out what, why I was still alive up to now. Those videos gave power to overthrow Sudan's dictator, creating a temporary peace. Okay, Ryan, tell us a little bit more about that story and start with, like, how did, how did you transition from Samaritan's Purse to uh, Nuba Reports? Sure. So the video doesn't really explain this too well either. Um, but when I was working with Samaritan's Purse, we had to start evacuating all of the international staff. We had 210 local staff and about 12 um, international staff when we started evacuating them. And then Samaritan's Purse told Jazeera and I that we had to now evacuate. Um, that was a moment in our lives that um, we just had to make a big decision. And so we prayed about it and we, I did not feel right just getting on a plane and leaving after going to villages like Howard's village and many other people that we told about, but no fear but Christ and salvation through Christ. And yet we're willing to jump on a plane and just leave. So um, we told Samaritan's Purse we, we would resign and I would resign from my, my position there and we would stay in Nuba and they made an organi organizational decision to leave. Um, and from that point, we saw that the best way we could help was the media and getting the word out about what was happening to people in that region. Jazeera, the, in that video, you told the story of hiding from that bomb, uh, seven months pregnant with your son. Tell us more about that part of that day for you. Well, I've been always accepting the fact that I would die in any bombing that I experienced um, before I was married to Ryan or before I was even pregnant. Um, and I was fine with that until the time that I got pregnant and I experienced that bombing. That was very different for me. It was hitting me differently. The fear I felt was very different because I was realizing that uh, if that bomb landed on me or close to me, I was not going to die alone anymore. I was going to die with my baby. So I was very scared. I, uh, I heard, as I, he I hear the bombing coming from the air, um, I laid immediately behind the rock. And when I laid behind the rock, the bombing doesn't give you a warning, like why it is landing or like um, how fast it's coming from the air. It's very fast. It doesn't give you time to pray. So I just remember saying, God, do it again. I wanted God to save me one more time. Um, and I was not accepting the fact that I can't die with my baby. So the bomb landed 25 yards away from me and a huge shrapnel flew over me and ricocheted the rock that was in front of me and nothing hit me. So I got up and the bomb before that landed very close to our house. So I ran towards the house. I was like, okay, now I'm alive, but I don't know if Ryan is alive with the rest of the people who are with him. So I ran towards the house and these thoughts coming um, in my head. And I thought, well, God is not done with me yet. And he was still at work with me. Um, when I gave birth, 
we named my son Eben, um, a short form for Ebenezer, meaning the rock of help. Wow, thank you. Uh, Ryan, the end of that video said something like a temporary peace. I, I know the conflict's not totally over, but it's slowed down. Tell us what has happened since. Yeah, so it's a very complicated situation, but while we were getting those videos out, um, we were so entrenched in the conflict area that I didn't even see what God was doing outside of the Nuba Mountains. But people were seeing those videos even within the country for the first time. And there were massive protests and they actually kicked out the dictator of over 30 years. Um, and then there was this, what we call right now, no war, no peace. So there's no benefits of peace, but there is also no ongoing fighting right now. The two, the two sides, there's a front line and within the area, people are able to farm, but they aren't able to travel really outside the area. You can't get supplies in there very easily, um, but that's the situation now and God is allowing the people to live without bombing and fighting. Mm. So then your ministry has transitioned to something new. Now that the active conflict is over, tell us about what God has led you to. Sure, so the... The media work always was a temporary thing. We saw that God wanted us to do that work now, and I didn't realize what he was preparing us for. From the moments with Samaritan's Purse and Jazeera's life before, and taking us from village to village and, and creating those relationships was preparing us for the next step. When the war slowed down, Jazeera and I made the decision to come back to the US because we wanted to start our organization called To Move Mountains. And that organization we set up to build and help children in the Nuba Mountains get an education that they deserve. The reason we did that is one, because of Jazeera's story and her struggle for education, and then the desires of the people. I would interview people inside caves and they would say, we need uh, education. And it, and it didn't make sense to me. I was like, you're hungry, you need food, you need, you need other things. But they said, education will help us out of oppression. And I thought it was a beautiful connection between our gaining knowledge and wisdom and relationship in Christ and having freedom from our oppression of sin. And so that's why we created To Move Mountains is that intersection between education and having children and people know about Christ. Um, we have a video that explains about that work. Um, I think we can show it now. Sudan has been at war for over 30 years and the Sudan government bombs villages, churches, schools, and hospitals. Its wars have caused a great lack of opportunity. Students are willing to walk hours and hours to come to a school made of rock and grass, sitting on stones and logs as they learn English and math. If there is a bombardment, the children have to run down the dark holes. There's a problem of uh, children to learn. They have developed kind of trauma. I've never been in Arkland before. As they enter this new moment in their life, I pray that they realize the opportunity they have and they make the most of it for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Education 
battles lack of opportunity. It battles lack of development and in turn curbs things like immigration and extremism. It allows people to think for themselves and develop themselves. When I came to Uganda to study, I realized that education is one of the basic human rights. Everyone deserves to get education. The world is not something very small or confined. The world is very wide and you have to learn what is also taking place all over. When I was in Nuba, I didn't know God answered prayers. God answers prayers. We want to build a robust education system, a new curriculum, new teaching methods. We want to build it from the ground up and let it be something that lasts very long term. And we hope that this will help the people of Nuba and Sudan get out of war and find other solutions to their problems. What's good about this school? What do you wish was better? What other things are important for students to learn in school? What skills and knowledge does somebody need in order to Too often, people come in with solutions to problems that they have never experienced. And often those solutions fail because they weren't created by the people who have to live them. It's getting that voice of the Nuba people to tell us what's important and what they want to get from it. We want our child to be associated with his identity and his language, who knows the values of Nuba people. We want to help him to have the spirit of cooperation with others. Anything else? what God has called you guys to do. Um, I want to ask a couple more questions while we have just a few minutes. And um, the first, maybe start with you, Ryan, and then I have a question, one more question for you, Jazeera. How did you guys get to Nashville? And, and, and what are you doing here specifically? So we came to Nashville because Jazeera and I don't have a background in doing education. Um, so through divine intervention, Jazeera and I were accepted at Vanderbilt University with Jazeera getting a full ride scholarship and she's about to graduate with uh, an A average, uh, which is amazing. Uh, and so we've been trying to build up this organization to go back and we are moving back um, this June as soon as Jazeera graduates. Uh, we. Our teams have been going there. We have a team there right now, which took them a very long time to get there because of the muddy roads, but they are their training teachers. We're about to graduate our first uh, class of teachers who've been in our training for three years. Uh, we got a little bit of funding to start building our first school, but this project isn't just a school. Um, God has allowed us, because of the ways he set it up, to be building a curriculum and training teachers for over 300 schools in this area. Um, so it's a, it's a huge endeavor. It's a, it's a big project that God has uh, allowed us and put in our laps to, to run with. And he has uniquely prepared you all for that work. Uh, Jazeera, I have to ask you, what in the world has life been like for you here in the last three years living in middle Tennessee? My life has been great. <laughs> 
I enjoyed my few years being here in America because um, everything is done using a button. Um, so you, when I wake up in the morning, I just touch the button to make my coffee, touch the button to wash my clothes, touch the button to cook, touch the button to wash my dishes. So that is really amazing. Um, so I rest enough. Um, but there are also some things that really contributed to my um, uh, faith in how I have grown in faith so much um, since I've been here because things like worship, even though there are a little differences, it, they are different in a good way because in my place, we worship like an army marching. We worship God as a king. Um, we always look up like there is a king up there to worship and you dance and then the dust is all over you. Um, here in America, um, you worship God as to build a relationship and you worship God like he's close to you. And both of those things really, um, I feel the privilege to put them together and it has really contributed to my faith, even the deep messages that I hear every week. It's, uh, it has been really amazing. Um, and those things are all about God. God is a king, God, um, he's uh, a friend, and he's God that we always want to get close to him by building relationship with him. And those things will um, never leave me, even though I leave America. Amen, amen. Uh, let me give a quick application for us, and then I'm going to tell you how we're planning to stay in touch with this family. Uh, first of all, when you hear their story, it's obviously dramatic. Uh, it's unique in many ways. But what I want you to understand is God has revealed to them his purpose. And, and what the, the lesson for us is they were open to it. I want you to think about Ryan when he arrived and he, that door opened and he felt the 115 degree. He, he had no idea what God had in store. He wasn't planning to spend the rest of his life there. He didn't know. He didn't know he was gonna marry Jazeera. He didn't know how all this was gonna go, but he just had open hands. Jazeera, you know, when, the, when Ryan showed up and, and she opened her heart to what God might be doing, she had no idea what he was gonna lead her to, but she had an open heart to it. She had open hands to it. And that's, that's how you have to start. I love when Jesus says, open your eyes, you know, open your eyes and look. So that's what I wanna encourage us today is just open our eyes. What could God be uniquely preparing you for? And then for this couple, I wanna say this. Here's how we're gonna stay in contact with them. They've been at our church for the last three years. They're gonna be sent back. We wanna be a part of that. And so we are gonna be praying with them. We're gonna be staying connected with them. We're gonna start taking short-term trips over there to explore potentially could there be a longer-term partnership and relationship that God would have for us with you. We've loved being your home church for these last few years. And I'm so glad that not just Brentwood Campus, but Franklin Campus could get to know you all today. So I wanna lead us in prayer for the Boyette family. And then I wanna lead us in prayer for all of us as we ask God, open our eyes and, and see what you would have us to do. Let, let me uh, lead us in this prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have. I thank you for the way that you have revealed to Ryan and Jazeera your unique plan for them. It's amazing to me to think about how uh, Jazeera and her struggle and the way that you uh, scripted her life 
to, to be that you would put her in a position now to have a degree from Vanderbilt University and go back to her country and, and lead this organization all around education. And I thank you for Ryan and the way that you've given him a unique opportunity to serve you and all the things that he's done and the way that you opened his heart to the people of Sudan. And I pray for them. I pray as they finish their time here, I pray as they begin to go back, that you would show them, encourage them, allow them just to know that they are doing the work of the Father who sent them. And I likewise wanna pray for us, each of us in the room watching online. God, would you help us to open our hearts, to just say, God, I, I, will, I will do the work that you've sent me to if you'll just show me what it is. And I pray, God, if we'll just start there, I think you're gonna do remarkable things in us. Thank you for Jesus Christ who showed us the work of the Father that he was called to do. And I pray we would follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, stay up here. I, I told y'all to leave in just a minute, um, but stay up here for a minute. Uh, we have, as you go, there's going to be um, a handout in the back. And it'll be right through those doors. You can grab that. Ryan, tell us a little bit more about how they can stay connected with you. Sure. So... You can find out more about our work at our website, tomovemountains.org. Um, you can also Do go- Do we have to, a slide? If there's a slide with that info, go ahead and put that up there. If not, that's fine. Just tell us. Sure. Um, you can find us on social media, To Move Mountains. Um, we post a lot and please sign up for our newsletter on our website. Um, but something big that we have going on, I'm leaving for Sudan on Tuesday for one month. Um, so please pray for that trip. We have a lot going on. But when I get back on December 16th, we're gonna have an event at the Loveless Barn. And please, all of you are invited. We would love to have you there. It's gonna be a great time of praise. We're gonna have live music, uh, hors d'oeuvres, and then some more stories about our time in Sudan. So we'd love to have you there. Thank you. And information about that is on that uh, flyer that you'll get on the way out. All right, y'all can go down now. Let me just give you a few announcements and then I'll dismiss us. If you're new to fellowship, we wanna make sure that you know how to get connected. There's a website, just connectedfellowship.com. We'd love for you to check that out. Uh, you can go to the Intro to Fellowship class, which is the first Sunday of every month. Uh, thank you for the way that you all give, that we give together as a body. It's a privilege for us to worship through giving. So I wanna encourage you to go to that website or text that phone number. Daryl's coming down here. He's reminding me that we're here to pray for you. Thanks for coming down here, being here for, uh, with us, uh, Daryl and Debbie, and there'll be others as well. You can go to that website, prayeratfellowship.com and share your prayer request with us. We would love to pray with you today or following through that website. Uh, let me dismiss us with these words. We are gathered here to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the earth. And then we're sent out to proclaim that message to others. May we do so well as we go in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.